Exodus chapter 20, I'm sorry. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read the first 17 verses this morning. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. This may sound silly to you, but oftentimes pastors get attached to their pulpits. Quite frankly, I'm in need of a new lectern, and I probably will get one. The oils from my hands have kind of stained the edges of this one, there's some faded spots in the varnish that used to sort of shine and make it pretty. On top of all that, the deck is a little low, and because my eyes have dimmed lately, I've had to sort of jack it up to get the papers a little closer to my eyes. But when I make the change, trust me, it won't be without some regret. For this pulpit is special to me. I've been preaching... You okay? David, can you check on? You okay? Okay, great. Good. <laughs> make sure. There you go. Follow her out and make sure she's okay. There you go. Nothing to drink of water won't help. I've been preaching behind this pulpit for 15 years, I think. It's sort of become special. I've sort of become attached. And the main reason that I'll hate to see it go is due to the fact that it was built by my dad. My father works with wood. 
And this pulpit was his gift to my ministry. And I'm sure this is how Moses felt about Mount Sinai. That outcropping of rock was special to him. It was a holy place because his heavenly father had used it as a pulpit. When God delivered the Hebrews, some three million strong, from 400 years of Egyptian slavery, Moses led them out into the Sinai Peninsula. Three months after their exodus from Egypt, the nation camped before God at Mount Sinai. The traditional Mount Sinai, or Jebel Musa as the Arabs call it, is a rectangular piece of granite that soars 7,500 feet into the air. But if you look at it from a distance, it resembles a pulpit. And that's what it was in the hands of God. It was a pulpit. In Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses to rope off the bottom of the mountain. The stone pulpit is off limits to the people. God knew that the rank and file Hebrew, even the priest for that matter, could never behold the brilliance of his glory and never withstand the intensity of his holiness. Only Moses and Joshua were allowed to go up on the mountain. And that's when God descended. He descended from heaven before these three million people. It's early in the morning. The sun is hot in the sky. When suddenly God descends and he overshadows the mountain in a thick cloud of his glory. It's as if there's a solar eclipse. This huge chunk of granite starts to rumble. The blast of a trumpet gets louder and louder. Here's Moses' description of it in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. He says, There were thunderings and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people were in the camp, who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The mountain seemed like an erupting volcano. And verse 19 reaches the high point. Imagine this. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Imagine hearing God speak audibly. How would the voice of God sound? On this day, there was no need to quiet your spirit or listen with the ears of your heart. There was no subtle communication on this day. Spiritual sensitivity was not required, for God sounded out the Ten Commandments from His pulpit for every ear to hear. God's voice must have been awe-inspiring and challenging and compelling. For when God finishes His sermon, in chapter 20, verse 19, the people ask Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. We think hearing from God would be pleasant, but apparently these folks wanted no more of it. Moses, we like talking to you. We can relate to a man, Moses. We're comfortable with flesh and blood, but we're a little leery of dealing directly with the Almighty. They were intimidated by God and His commandments. God's grandeur and His greatness and His goodness overwhelmed them. Their mountain meeting with God, along with what He audibly articulated, proved to be completely overwhelming to these Hebrews. They were wiped out by the glory and majesty of God. And the people probably had the same reaction. 
when Moses brought down from Mount Sinai the printed version of God's sermon. For not only did God vocalize these Ten Commandments, but he etched them in stone with his very own finger. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, we're told, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. In chapter 32, verse 16, we're further told, Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. It would be one thing to hear God's voice. Imagine getting to analyze his handwriting. There's an old joke. Who is the only person in the Bible to break all Ten Commandments at one time? And the answer is Moses. For when he saw the people worshiping the golden calf, he got angry and he threw down the two tablets and broke all the Ten Commandments at one time. Even then, God told Moses to bring to him two new stone slabs, stone tablets. God still wanted his people, Israel, to possess a hard copy of what he had spoken to them, these Ten Commandments. And God says to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 1, I will write these tablets, write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. In other words, God was so determined for his people to have for their future generations to possess a lasting record of his commandments that he even wrote them down twice. In fact, later, God orders Moses to build an ark, a gold-plated box, about four feet wide, long by two feet wide. The ark of the covenant would rest in the tabernacle, man's place of worship, and it would represent God's presence, his throne on the earth. In a sense, the ark was the nation's treasure chest. And guess what God told Moses to place within that box? These two tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. Here's my point. What one sermon did God deliver to three million people from a 7,500-foot-tall pulpit? What one sermon was accompanied by lightning and thunder and shaking? What one sermon did God speak in an audible voice? What one message did God write down with his own finger, then write down again? Which one of God's sermons did he engrave in stone so that it would never be forgotten? And which one of God's sermons did he put in a box for safekeeping? The answer is the Ten Commandments. Needless to say, Exodus chapter 20 contains vital, strategic, foundational words. Words that were spoken and written and engraved and saved by the Creator Himself. The Jews refer to these ten injunctions as simply the ten words or the ten sayings. Sometimes Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17 is called the Decalogue, which is a Greek word. Deca means ten and logos means word. Here is God's top ten, His top ten words. There are some who believe that God wrote these ten sayings on the heart of Adam and Eve when He created them in the Garden of Eden, that God wrote his moral code within them, sort of a natural law. We call it a conscience. It's interesting that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, they literally broke almost all of the Ten Commandments. To take something forbidden was stealing. They believed Satan's lie. They coveted God's wisdom. Their sin led to death, which was tantamount to murder. 
They broke God's Sabbath rest. <clears throat> and their disobedience revealed their desire to worship other gods, namely themselves. After Adam's sin, the conscience of all human beings became clouded. The moral code that God planted within man, his sense of right and wrong became muddled. And the further succeeding generations plunged into wickedness, the further the human race drifted from these internal, this internal compass that God had placed within man. Man's conscience became seared. The internal state was defaced. The standard was defaced. Until God came down on Mount Sinai. And there he restates and rewrites his moral code. This time he literally puts it in stone rather than in flesh. God wrote on stone tablets with his own finger what he had written on man's nature at creation. In the Ten Commandments, in essence, God codifies conscience. He gives us a universal standard that applies to all men at all times and that all men will recognize. And throughout history, the Ten Commandments have served mankind well. Understand the law of Moses was not the only set of ethics floating around the ancient world. You've probably heard of the Code of Hammurabi. There were other such codes as well. But the Ten Commandments is the only one that has stood the test of time. It has provided a foundational basis for the formation of Western civilization. In the West, the Ten Commandments are called the fountainhead for common law. The Ten Commandments provide guidance for every facet of life. Their application is broad and sweeping, but their presentation is distilled and condensed and powerful. And sometimes brevity can be beautiful. It reminds me of the man who hated long-winded sermons. And so he told his pastor, the pastor that was officiating his wedding, that he would give him $5,000 if he could perform the wedding in just five words. $1,000 per word. The pastor said, no problem with that. And so on the big wedding day, when the couple reached the altar, the man, the pastor looked at the groom and sort of motioned to his bride and said, take her. He said, I do. And then he looked at the bride and sort of motioned to the groom and said, take him. She says, I do. And that's when the pastor pronounced, took That was it, a whole wedding in just five words, and the pastor received his $5,000. As I say, brevity can be beautiful, and that's true of the Ten Commandments. Notice, in just ten statements, God covers every facet of spiritual and social relationships. As one author observes, there's something self-contained and final about these commandments. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, begin where we will but we are pretty sure in a short space to be mumbling our Ten Commandments. In other words, any discussion on ethics will eventually lead us back to God's top ten list. The Ten Commandments remain the bedrock for spirituality and morality. As the former president Theodore Roosevelt once said, I stand by the Ten Commandments. They are bully. In essence, they are our ultimate authority. Obviously, the founders of America stood with Teddy Kennedy in his support and admiration of the Ten Commandments. Go to Washington, D.C. today, and you'll find the Ten Commandments adorning many of our nation's monuments and buildings. 
The Ten Commandments are engraved on the floor of our National Archives. A bronze statue of Moses, who represents the Ten Commandments, stands in the Library of Congress. In fact, the face of Moses is directly across from the Speaker's chair in the House of Representatives. An irony of all ironies. The Ten Commandments are carved into the wooden doors that open up into the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And yet it seems that those justices that sit on the bench of our nation's highest court must come in and out through the back door. <laughs> For it was their decision in November of 1980 that struck down a Kentucky law requiring the posting of the Ten Commandments in all of our public school classrooms. The court eliminated the Ten Commandments from our nation's classrooms. And yet those same commandments adorn the front doors of their chambers. And here is the reason they gave for their crazy ruling. They said the Ten Commandments are plainly religious and may induce children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate, and to obey the commandments. What a horrible thing that would be for our kids to actually obey the Ten Commandments. I think we've lost our minds. In America today, it's no longer freedom of religion. It has become freedom from religion. For 24 years, we've taken our society's foundational basis for morals and ethics. We've taken them now away from our students. Is it any wonder that immorality abounds? In essence, we have scratched out, do not commit adultery, and passed out condoms. When Alabama Chief Justice Judge Roy Moore moved a two-and-a-half-ton granite monument engraved with the Ten Commandments into his courtroom, the ACLU was there to sue Judge Moore for violation of the separation of church and state. A federal court ordered the monument's removal. Of course, Moore refused and appealed to the Supreme Court. And on November 13, 2003, our highest court ordered Judge Roy Moore removed from office for failing to comply with the federal order. Afterwards, Moore stated, I have absolutely no regrets. It's about whether or not you can acknowledge God as a source of our law and liberty. I believe Judge Roy Moore is a patriot. Certainly Moore isn't advocating the rule of Christianity over a pluralistic society. All he wanted to do was pay respect to the contribution that the Bible and the Ten Commandments have made to America's laws and liberties. Just take a tour of Washington, D.C., and that contribution becomes self-evident. To deny it is to stick your head in the sand and to ignore the obvious, or worse, it reveals a more sinister motive. You see, the real reason that the Ten Commandments threaten so many folks in our culture is that they assume a higher authority. After all, they are the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. The word commandment presupposes a commander. Understand, Moses just didn't hand down the Ten Commandments as a code of conduct or a set of ethics. They were part of a covenant. We call it the Mosaic or the Old Covenant. And you see, a covenant is a, it, it sets forth the terms of a relationship. It establishes a relationship between two people. The Ten Commandments are man's obligation to God. Look at the first two verses here in Exodus 20. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. All that follows flows out of that relationship. The people who received these commandments obviously knew God. He was their creator. He was also their redeemer. The Ten Commandments, you see, were words spoken to people from their deliverer. God Almighty had just come to the aid of his people, Israel. He had rolled up his shirt sleeves, and he had performed ten power-packed miracles. His mighty acts had shattered Pharaoh's trust in the gods of Egypt and had forced him to release the Hebrews. And now this same God comes, who performed the ten miracles. He now comes, and he unveils ten commandments. As one Jewish rabbi put it, the commandments follow the gospel of undeserved deliverance. This is the case with all God's covenants. Salvation is always by grace through faith. Our obedience to the commandments never earns for us God's favor or God's acceptance. The person who says, well, I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. I'll make it to heaven. That person doesn't understand, first of all, what's good in God's eyes. Nor do they understand what the Ten Commandments are really all about. Nor do they know what it takes to get to heaven. Nobody ever earns their own ticket. God's favor, His acceptance, as well as heaven itself, is always a gift given to those who trust in His promises. Obedience is just our way to say thanks. For me, to acknowledge God's commandments is to submit my life to Him. It's to admit that I'm not my own commander. That my life depends upon and looks to a higher authority. That God calls the shots and that one day I'll give an account of my life to Him. And here's the rub that some people have with the Ten Commandments. They don't like it when another person sets the pace. Even when that other person is God. Patterson and Kim, in their book, The Day America Told the Truth, found that only 13% of Americans follow the Ten Commandments. And only 40% believe in as many as five of the ten. And yet, a Gallup CNN poll revealed that 77% of Americans approved of the monument in Judge Roy Moore's courtroom. Apparently, Americans are a lot more comfortable posting the Ten Commandments than they are obeying them. Several years ago, a U.S. News and World Report published the results of a poll they found that 76% of Americans believe that God hears their prayers. 77% of people believe that God has intervened in their lives at some point. But here's the kicker. 70%, 7 out of 10, also believe that each individual should decide for himself what's right and what's wrong. In essence, only 30% of Americans believe in an absolute universal standard for truth. This caused the Princeton Religious Center to comment, in America, religion is gaining ground, but morality is losing ground. You see, people like the notion of God. They certainly want His supernatural help. They just don't want to have to obey and acknowledge His standards. They don't like being tied down to his authority and his will. And I'm afraid this is the sad state of many people in the church today. Christian churches have given people the impression that God will accept them and bless them 
and even forgive them without them accepting any responsibility to God. That's not biblical Christianity. According to the Bible, a person who doesn't submit their life to God's authority and seek his direction is not a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The word disciple means follower or learner. As the old saying goes, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Guys, God didn't give us the Ten Commandments to hem us in. Nor did he give them to us to suppress our individual freedoms. He gave us these commandments because he loves us. God's top ten will protect us. It will help us maximize life. Life does go better when you put it together according to the owner's manual. When you follow God's ten words. Understand that God's moral and spiritual laws are just like the laws of nature. You can ignore them for a while. You can deny that they exist. You can choose to disobey them, but not without consequence. Take the law of gravity. You can believe in it or not. It's your choice. But jump out of a 10-story building. Deny the law of gravity all the way down. But you'll soon find out that it's real. It reminds me of a question called into J. Vernon McGee on his radio show. <clears throat> An airplane had blown up over Los Angeles, and the wreckage had landed in a schoolyard, injuring some children. And the caller wanted to know why God had allowed the kids to be harmed. McGee started talking to him about the law of gravity. That's what brought down the wreckage into the schoolyard. And the caller argued, he said, well, couldn't God have suspended the law of gravity? And that's when J. Vernon McGee, with that southern drawl that was so famous, said to him, he said, yeah. But if he had, everybody else would have flew off the planet. <laughs> Violate the laws of nature and you'll suffer the consequences. And the same is true with God's moral and spiritual laws. Run roughshod over the Ten Commandments and you'll experience harm and hardship and heartbreak and headache. As Spurgeon once said, God never allows his children to sin successfully. <laughs> Over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be studying God's top 10. And here's a challenge for you. Over the next 10 weeks, why don't you and your family try to memorize the Ten Commandments? You can go for the full version. You can take Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17 and try to memorize all 17 verses, or you can just memorize the commandments themselves. Here's the abbreviated list. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no graven images. Number three, respect the Lord's name. Number four, keep the Sabbath holy. Number five, honor your parents. Number six, no murder. Number seven, no adultery. Number eight, no stealing. Number nine, no lying. Number ten, no envy. The Ten Commandments God set in stone. And if God spoke and wrote them, engraved and saved them, let's us take them to heart and put them to memory. Once a little boy was asked to name the Ten Commandments. He said he could only remember two. Pick up your toys and don't drink and drive. Well, he was 0 for 2. Neither of those commandments made God's top 10 list. 
Or did you hear of the Sunday school teacher who asked her class, what commandment would you be breaking if you pulled your dog's tail? The little girl raised her head and said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. <laughs> I hope you'll do better than these two little children. Hopefully by the end of our 10 weeks studying these commandments, you'll be able to recite the 10 commandments. But not only that, your life will reveal and reflect these 10 commandments as well. For God's top 10 list is more than just for quoting and posting. They're for obeying and for applying to our lives. It reminds me of a man who commented to Mark Twain that before he died, he wanted to travel to the Middle East, stand on the top of Mount Sinai, and recite the Ten Commandments. Wouldn't that be a wonderful, wonderful experience? And that's when Mark Twain turned to him and said, I've got a better idea. Why don't you go back to Boston and live the Ten Commandments? Let me share with you an insight that I think will help us in our application of these commandments. Notice in chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. Immediately after God gives the Ten Commandments, He instructs His people on how to build an altar. An altar of sacrifice. It's as if God knows up front that we'll never be able to keep all of these commandments. Especially the spirit and intent behind these commandments. God knows we'll break all ten at some point, And we'll need an altar where we can come and obtain forgiveness. Reminds me of the country boy who was impressed with his pastor's sermon on the Ten Commandments. And after the sermon, the fellow promised his pastor, I've made up my mind to keep them their Ten Commandments. Each week for the next ten weeks, I'm going to keep a different commandment until I work through all ten. Understand, according to James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you violate the law in one point, you're guilty of it all. Think of it this way. If you're in a boat with ten planks, and you look down in the floor of the boat, and there's ten planks, there's nine really strong, good, tight planks, but there's one plank that's weak and rotted. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's just one plank. You're in big trouble. Your whole boat's about to go down. The nine good planks won't overcome the one rotten, leaky plank. The weak one is going to sabotage the whole boat. This is why the Ten Commandments can never make a man righteous. But if the Ten Commandments were never intended to save us or make us righteous and pleasing to God, then why were they and the rest of the law given to us? And I've got seven reasons for you this morning why these Ten Commandments are so important. First of all, the law reveals our sin. Now, we know this. Without a speed limit sign, you'd never know you were driving too fast. And without God's law, we don't know that we sinned. A pastor once wrote a weekly newspaper column. And one week, he got behind in his work, and he didn't have time to write his column. And so instead, he just posted the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17, right in his normal column, his editorial. Well, that week, the newspaper got a letter from one of its readers that said, please cancel my subscription. Your editorials are now getting too personal. <laughs> the Ten Commandments do get personal. They uncover the hidden areas of our life. They expose our sin. Well, second, the law also reveals God's righteousness. The Ten Commandments raise the bar on our attitudes and our behavior. 
They show us a better way to live, a lifestyle beyond what we would normally expect for ourselves. They show us life as God intended. Third, the law curtails evil. The Ten Commandments force us to think twice before we act selfishly or lured away by temptation or worship God amiss. This is why the Ten Commandments should be posted in our classrooms. It would cause kids to think twice before stepping outside of God's boundaries. Fourth, the law points, us, points to us our need for a Savior. Galatians 3 verse 24 calls the commandments our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law teaches us that there is no way that we, in and of ourselves, on our own, can be good enough for God, and thus we need outside help. We need a Savior. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say that the law was like a mirror. The mirror doesn't clean your face, but it shows you that it's dirty, and it sends you to the cleanser. Fifth, the law paints for us a picture of the Spirit-filled life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and the Ten Commandments show us what love looks like, what real love looks like. John MacArthur provides a great way to view the commandments. He sees them as a picture of love. The first commandment, love is loyal. The second commandment, love is faithful. The third, love is reverent. The fourth, love is intimate. The fifth, love is respectful. The sixth, thou shalt not murder, love is harmless. The seventh, don't commit adultery, love is pure. The eighth, love is unselfish. The ninth, love is truthful. And the tenth, love is content. Sixth, the law expresses our thanks to God. Keeping the law expresses our thanks to God. Jesus said in John 14, verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Keeping God's commandments is a way to express our love and our thanks to God for all He's done for us. And seventh, the law helps us order our priorities for successful living. The Ten Commandments are God's guideposts in our lives. They teach us what really matters. You see, our job is to turn the Ten Commandments into ten convictions. Ten personal convictions. We're to look at these commandments and say, here is where my family can't compromise. Here is where I put my foot down. Here is where I'm going to take a stand. These ten words are non-negotiables. Here is where I need to stand. Here are the ten mountains worth dying to defend. This is what we need to do to the ten commandments. Make them personal convictions. Recently, I was watching a television commercial where this young boy says to his girlfriend, I'm not impressed with you anymore. You don't have any values. And she looks back at him and she says, Oh, yes, I do. I bought this blouse for $5.95. That's what values have come to in our society. Walmart specials. Here's what concerns me about folks today, even Christians. Where are our convictions? Our principles? Our non-negotiables. What is your bottom line? Are you moved by something more than money? Another poll by Patterson and Kim revealed that 74% of Americans would steal from someone who wouldn't miss what was stolen. 64% of Americans would lie if it were convenient and if it hurt no one. 
Who knows the percentage of men who would indulge in pornography on the internet if they were guaranteed that no one else would know? How shallow have we become? Where is our integrity? Where is our moral fortitude? Is there anything that really matters to us anymore? For which we'll take a stand. It's been said, character is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. And the Ten Commandments, friends, are all about character. What are the non-negotiables in your life? What are the standards that never change regardless of the people you're with or the stress that you're under? Do your kids see you as a chameleon? As a lizard that sort of slithers around and blends in with its surroundings? Or do they see you as a champion of what you believe? Do your friends at school recognize that, oh, this is the kid that goes with the flow? Or do they see you as the kid who will take a stand? Always remember, toilet paper goes with the flow. I look around today in our society, and I see hollow men, hollow women. On the outside, these people seem to be alive, but inside they're stuffed with straw. They have no conviction. There's nothing in their life worth their sacrifice and their absolute commitment. They're drifting without an anchor. They're floating down the river with no moral or spiritual compass, and they're headed for that waterfall. It's been said the person who stands for nothing will fall for anything. Someone else has said the pressing need in America is not for guided missiles but for guided morals. I couldn't agree more. It's time that we reinstall the underpinnings, the foundations. Guys, morality and spirituality is not a guessing game. Despite what the world says, right and wrong, true and false, do exist. A customized morality that serves our selfish interest isn't part of God's plan. God gives us absolutes, truth for all times, truth for all people, truth that stands the test of time. And over the next 10 weeks, it's my prayer that God will build character and conviction in my life and in yours. I hope that we'll enter the new year embracing 10 non-negotiables. Humorist and social commentator Will Rogers once said this about the Ten Commandments. He said, Moses just went up on the mountain with some instructions from the Lord and just wrote them out. And they applied to steel men, oil men, bankers, farmers, and even the United States Chamber of Commerce. And Moses said, here they are, brother. You take them and live by them or else. Moses came down from that mountain with two slabs of stone. On them were written the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. I hope that you'll be with us these next few months as we develop some non-negotiables in our lives.